welcome back to another episode of the Water Women Podcast. My name is Jill, and I'm the host and creator of this podcast. Today, we're just going to jump right in because I am so excited about this podcast. I got to sit down and chat with Nan Hauser, who is a world-renowned whale biologist and is my personal hero. So this was so incredibly exciting for me. And I'm so excited for you guys to listen to her amazing story about being saved by a whale. So with that, let's just jump right in. Welcome to the Water Women Podcast, Nan. I'm so excited to have you on today. Thank you, Jill. I'm very excited to be on also, even though I'm halfway around the world. It sounds like I'm sitting in a studio with you. It does. It's pretty great quality for uh, being a couple thousand miles away from one another, but... (laughs) It's so cool that we were able to do this and that I'm able to talk to you. Yes. So, Nan, you are quite possibly one of the coolest people I've ever heard of in my entire life and now have the chance to talk to. (laughs) And you are a fellow whale woman like me. Yes, we're all very closely related. (laughs) This is true. So would you mind telling us just a little bit about you and like who you are and what you do? Well, my name is Nan Deschler-Hauser, and I think that when we're very young, we realize that we need to have a mission, that we need to have a purpose in life. And I always felt like my purpose was to take care of animals. And so I always did that. My family did. We rehabilitated animals, but I always had this incredible mysterious um, desire to work with dolphins and whales and everyone laughed at me and said that's impossible are you kidding me you you couldn't possibly do that because you get seasick and it's illegal and you'll get killed and you don't have a boat and so I kind of put it on the back burner but I still um I still had that hidden dream that I was going to do it so I um, I had spent a lot of my childhood in Bermuda, and I would watch the humpbacks from there. And the big mystery was, what are they doing underwater? I could watch them, and I'd squeal, and I'd scream, and I'd stand on the on the coral, and I'd point. But I wanted to know what they were doing underwater. And so it just kind of happened that I did. Um, I took a bit of an interesting route. And that was to first go to school for art when I was 17, and I loved that. And then I went to nursing school, and I loved that. And then I went back to nursing school after my first child. And then um, I decided after my third child that I was going to pursue my dream and use these other careers, which tie in very, very well with, with marine biologists and um, start a PhD and study whales like I had always talked about. I love that. You do get quite a bit of, there's no way you're going to do that when you tell people, oh yeah, like I want to study whales. Like I've gotten that since I started university, since even before then when I told people like, oh yeah, whales are what I'm interested in. People are like, oh, there's no, there's nothing in that. So it's nice to have someone to look up to that I can be like, actually, there's lots to do there. There's lots we don't know. Oh my gosh, we've just really touched the tip of the iceberg. There is so much we don't know. And so as we learn it, to me anyway, it's like they give away information 
that's been stored very deeply and very carefully. And so it's a gift. So when you discover something new or you put something together and you go, whoa, that's amazing. It's, it really is a gift. And there's so much more to know. <laughs> there really is. There, there's so much. So you're actually the president and director and founder of the Center for Cetacean Research and Conservation, which is so cool. That's such a cool sentence to be able to say. <laughs> well, you said it right. But how did that get started? Um, I was working for the Dolphin Research Center in Grassicky, Florida, but I was living in Maine. And so I, and I had kids, so I'd go back and forth. And then I decided with them that I would start something called the New England Dolphin Outreach Project because I wanted to teach. I didn't necessarily want to do research. Um, I wanted to teach all about whales and help protect them. But, and I did that, but then I started working, making films as production researchers and things like that and working with other species. And then I started it on nothing. I really started this, the CCRC, the Center for Cetacean Research and Conservation, on, I don't, I think it was like $6,000. And that's all we needed. Wow. Because we started it out of love. You know, there are so many people out there that want to join forces. And I love collaboration. And, you know, once you start putting people together to work on something, it becomes exponential. And then I just didn't sleep for a few years. I worked day and night and I went out into the field and I took my kids somewhere. Oh, I threw them on my back and I held them by the hand. They drove the boats and they, I homeschooled them on the ocean and everyone said I was crazy but they loved it and I loved it. And we learned and learned and learned. And the more we learned and the more we filmed, it just got to be the way of life that we were going to live for the rest of our lives. That's amazing. That is honestly kind of how I want to live my life now. So you've kind of inspired me. Yeah. Well, come join the team. <laughs> Don't tempt me. I'm serious. Okay. There have been times when I've been um, lecturing or doing doing workshops when people will say, well, you can do this because you, you don't have any children. And I was like, hang on. <laughs> you know, I did it with my children. And now I have six grandchildren and I do it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm doing it with my grandchildren now. <laughs> so. Wow, that is amazing. I... I didn't know you lived in Maine. That is so cool to me because I'm from New Brunswick, which is like, that's where I am right now. It's so well, quite close to oh, the border. Oh. So you're familiar with this oh, area fantastic. that like the Bay of Fundy in the Gulf of Maine. Oh, yes. Yes, I am. I'm very familiar with the Gulf. done a lot of work up there. I've done, um, and also north in Canada off, um, oh, Alf Mingan up higher, where the blue whales are and in the, uh, the Gulf of St. Lawrence and all along, along there. Yeah, I've worked pretty much all over the place. So You really have. You've been everywhere. I have. And I love Maine. And I have to go to Maine every Christmas because I have to be in the cold, in the snow, and have a Christmas tree and do the whole Maine, that whole New England, New Brunswick Christmas. You know what it's like. I can't do it's a 
self-fulfilling Christmas. <laughs> I sure do. Well, it's interesting because everybody expects me to say one thing, and we study so many things. Uh, I'll try to tell you off the top of my head. So basically, the, the very simple part of it is studying population identity and doing photo IDs and population abundance. And that, and you know, getting to know who's here and who's related because we do genetics. I get a piece of skin off every whale or a biopsy, any part, any bodily fluid, I can sequence the DNA. And so genetics has become an incredible tool and I, I love it. And then I do migration and navigation. So I satellite tag animals and tell you more about that. I do acoustics, so we listen and we do um, recording of humpback whale song, which is phenomenal. And before this podcast is over, I need to tell you about something called horizontal cultural transmission in humpback whale song because it's fascinating. Uh, we do this Dr. Drove. We use um, infrared and multispectral imaging on a drone so we can look over the whale and we can get the body temperature and the pulse and the respirations and if there are any wounds and assess the health of that whale and it's really cool so that's a new thing we're doing and we're doing stable isotopes which you can get from skin you know sloughed off skin in the water my favorite thing, of course, is underwater behavior. We do surface behavior and underwater behavior. And wow, I could just spend my life underwater just watching their behavior because, and that's exactly what I wanted to do when I was a kid in Bermuda, watching their blows and then they disappear. And I'd be like, where'd they go? What are they doing? And now we're learning a little bit anyway, but we're learning some really cool things. So cool. The underwater behavior has always, always fascinated me. It's always kind of like the mystery of it. You don't know what's going on down there, but you're like, I want to know what you're doing. And how they're thinking. How does their brain work compared to ours? And that's a very interesting thing because every species of whale thinks differently. They all have this different sort of thought, thought process and they put off like an, a really different energy. Every whale does. From a you know a pilot whale to a a rare beaked whale to a sperm whale to every single whale, but but every single species. But then on top of that, every whale has their own personality. So that's really cool to get to know whales if they let you. And some just don't want you to know them, so they just go away, and that's fine too. But just like humans, they have different personalities. Oh, absolutely. And it's so funny that sometimes you can almost identify them based on their personalities, like without looking at their like markings or like with the humpbacks on the tail, like sometimes you just know who's who just on how they're acting. Exactly. So you guys do a lot of um, at the center, a lot of research on migration as well. I know, which is so cool. It is. You know, you're not going to believe this. this. To me, I think this is one of the most incredible discoveries that we've made. And I, I work with um, Travis Horton and Alex Zerbini and other people that um, tag whales. And, okay, here's the cool thing. So 
I always noticed that from Rarotonga and these islands through the South Pacific, through, through the Cook Islands, when the whales leave, they go to the west and they come up. It's not necessarily even like coming all coming from French Polynesia. They don't, they sort of come up. And remember, it's if they came in a direct line from Antarctica, it would be 4,000 miles. And that's they don't come in a direct line at all. And we're not even a place where they stay for long. They pass through here, so it's a corridor. So they're using our island as a waypoint, as a point to come up and go west. And so when we tag them, this really proved everything. They, they did all go to the west. Some went a little bit northwest towards Samoa because they're coming up here to mate and give birth in the warmer waters of Oceania. Because, and I just, it was so great. I was just talking to some people from Nat Geo because I'm helping them on a film. And they said something about, do you think they're mating in Antarctica? And I said, well, you're all guys. Do you think you could mate in ice water? And they started laughing. And it's, <laughs> but they really do come up here to mate in the warmer waters of Oceania and to give birth here. And that makes sense. We, they come up close to the islands and um, they are safer from killer whales and predators when they're giving birth. The blood absolutely draws predators from the placenta and the afterbirth. And, um, and the mothers hang out here for a few days and they, they kind of, they'll make this, the um, male stay away from them. They'll blow bubble screens and stuff like that. But they'll come in really close. And actually the males aren't too bad here. They don't harass them. Not for a while, not till the calf gets bigger and stronger. Here, anyway. I know that's different in other places. Okay, so they, so they come up here, and then they leave. And when they leave, they follow a perfectly straight line. We did an NPR program years ago, and it, we called it Straight as an Arrow. It's a paper we published mm -hmm. where they will follow a linear constant course segment and they will not deviate by even one degree. And this is in water that is thousands of meters deep because we're a volcano here and then suddenly it just drops off. It's just so blue, you can't see anything. So there are no landmarks. I mean, there, there aren't, we're not scattered with islands. We have 15 islands that go all through up north and stuff, but they're heading west. So they're following this, this linear constant course and I can put my boat in front of them and they literally will not go around it because they will not deviate. And so they go under my boat and back up again. And I, I just, by tagging, we can see that they do this. And then according to the declination of the moon, which creates the gravity pull on the earth and the water, according to gravity um, and what the phase the moon is in, they will make an angled turn at exactly 23.439 degrees and multiples of that. This blew my mind. You can imagine. I mean, I get goosebumps now when I talk about it still. And so if you take that 23.439 degrees and multiply it times two or three or four or five or whatever, those are the perfect angled turns that they're making. And think back to like third grade. Because 23.439 degrees is the Earth's axis. 
So they're using, (laughs) I know, they're using this form of celestial navigation. They're not looking. I mean, everyone says, oh, so when they spy hop, they're looking up at the stars. No, they, we don't know how they're doing it. Actually, we're looking for the biomagnetite in the, in the wheel. And anyway, so, so you look at these tracks and the track that will be on a constant course line and then turn to the right and then turn to the left and then maybe turn to the right again. And so there's, there's no straight line to their destination. There's actually a zigzag going, going back and forth until they get to their destination, like Tonga, if Tonga's their next stop, if they're going to mate and give birth there. So cool. Mm, it it really is. And, you know, the thing about the biomagnetite is that it's, well, there was a study done, I think in the 80s, where they found biomagnetite in the dura matter of the brain of a whale. I believe it was a fin whale. And so that was really cool that we thought we found it. But then years down the road, I think it was Darlene Ketton who actually repeated that same um necropsy and looked for the biomagnetite and found that she had used a glass scalpel and there were no little tiny metal um, pieces in there anymore, like biomagnetite, that it had actually been pieces of metal that had come off the, the metal scalpel that they'd used. So sometimes we think we've discovered something and we haven't. But so my feeling is... They, you know, these tubercles on their face, these these bumps that they have on their face. Each one has like a fibrosa, a thick hair, and the it's attached to a nerve. But I have one in my freezer, and I'm dying to cut it up. It's from a, a calf that had died, and although I don't, you know, you know, you need this incredible machine to be able to find biomagnetite, and so I'll probably send it down to Canterbury University or something. Um, I believe, this is just my theory, I have nothing to back it up, <laughs> that the biomagnetite may be inside those those tubercles. But we'll see. You never know. You know, in a bird, it's in the beak. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's cool. But just, you know, here's the really cool thing is that, so we started looking at other tracks of other animals. So we found that killer whales are doing this. And... We found that penguins, city shearwaters, osprey, uh, albatross, sharks, turtles, they're all following this like master plan of, of going in a straight line and then following this 23.4 through 9 degree angles. So that means that this whole method is underwater, um, at, on land, and in the air. And yet we don't know yet. Like, like we don't know, like that, like there's so much we don't know about it yet. Yeah, exactly. Wow. That is insane. I know it's, and there's so much more to learn from it. So absolutely, (laughs) I know, but that's just what, there's so many cool things happening right now. What, what else are you guys doing? Like you said, you do some stuff with acoustics. That's always kind of been acoustics and behavior have always been my like favorite things to look at. So 
Okay, so with acoustics, well, the original thing that we did is took 775 songs between Australia and French Polynesia. And that's, you know, that's over thousands and thousands of miles. It's, I mean, everybody thinks, oh, you're in the, you're in the South Pacific, you can go here and you can go there. Well, you can't. I mean, Tonga's a thousand miles away from here. French Polynesia is like 950 miles. You know, we, we've got the, the Pacific Ocean is larger than the surface of the moon. So we're, we're talking huge distances. But what happened was Michael Node, who's an acoustician, in Australia, he discovered that the humpback songs on the west coast of Australia, which he recorded, were very distinct, made up of four or five phrases, as they are. And the next year, he heard one of those phrases on the east coast of Australia. And that was pretty amazing. So what we did, it was one of his students, Ellen Garland, who is a great acoustician now, and it, she's in St. Um, Andrews in Scotland working now. She took, she was our student. It was so great. <laughs> she was our student. She came back this year with her students. <laughs> but, um, so what we found is that they are literally taking phrases from Western Australia and passing them from west to east. And remember how I just said how all the whales, my whales that from here in the Cook Islands, the, the ones that that pass through the Cook Islands, they all go from, from east to west. So this is really bizarre. But they pass these phrases, not the whole song, just a phrase across Oceania, this huge ocean basin. So it's a horizontal cultural transmission going from Western Australia to Eastern Australia to New Caledonia to um, Tonga, Samoa, uh, Cook Islands, and French Polynesia. And it's so we she's given each phrase a color, and then you sort of see this ripple of color going across this huge ocean basin. Wow. So it's almost like they're learning slang from this other group of whales. Well, yeah, that, that's a way of looking at it. But the way I look at it is that they're passing data. I think that they're really, I mean, what would be the purpose yeah. of passing these phrases, unless it means something. And so in my classes, I always, I don't care how old they are, I'll ask, you know, senior citizens and little children and all everything in between, why do you think whales sing? And the answers are really phenomenal. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> you get everything. Yeah. Everything possible. And yet we don't know exactly why they sing. In 1972, Roger Payne theorized that they sing to attract females. And that is part of it. They will sing on the breeding grounds and they will sing as loud as they can and it's to impress the females. Although, very interestingly, they don't really swim up to the singing males here. I've never honestly seen a female go, oh, oh that's a beautiful song. I'm going to swim up to that male and, and, and go check them out. Um, she can hear the song and she can tell whether it's good or bad or whether it's attractive or not, I guess. And um, yet in Australia, Michael says, oh, well, our whales, our females swim up to the males. <laughs> and I said, because it's Australia. <laughs> so we tease. <laughs> it's like for every one thing we know about whales, there's just like 
hundreds of things that we don't know for that like oh, one thing. Like it's they're so unknown. It's so cool. Absolutely. And what what is so cool is that this year, by all of us putting our heads together, um, we have a the South Pacific Whale Research Consortium, which is fabulous because we just we're all like brothers and sisters and we share all our data and we write papers together and things like that, which is kind of unusual because some scientists can get very um, mm, private and not share. Not They're not good sharers. <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah, and we, we, we share everything. So by doing that, we learn a lot more. And what we did learn this past year is that the song transfer, and this is really, really mysterious still. Who makes up the new phrases? Where does it come from? What does it mean? And how does it get transferred? And the, the um, friends that, of mine that were working over towards the, these islands called the Kermadex, which are between New Zealand and Tonga, they found that the Kermadex revealed that a song was being transferred there that whales that were coming through there were learning the new song and the new phrases and that's just bizarre it's just bizarre and i mean we we hear it here too uh but not not on a level like they do where they get phrases from every single breeding ground that that's through oceania that we're, we're studying but i'll have a whale come in and he'll be singing a whole new song and I'll record him, and then I'll record another whale singing his song, which all the whales in this area sing the song, same song that year, but it changes drastically the next year. But if a whale comes in and sings a new song, they might incorporate one of the phrases from that new song into our song here in the Cook Islands. They adopt it. And so... It's kind of bizarre. It's just, it's a transfer of, of phrases of song. So it has to be, to me anyway, it has to be a transfer of data somehow. Oh, absolutely. There has to be like a reason for them to mm -hmm. use it. Like they're not just using it for no reason. Yeah. And, you know, we can uh, anthropomorphize that and say, oh, they're talking about the breeding grounds and the feeding grounds and the migration and the route and, and all that. But, you know, that's just the way we think this linear thinking. Yeah. They, they, I mean, I'm not sure we will ever understand how their brain works and who knows what, what it means, but we're going to keep looking and studying and thinking and imagining. <laughs> that's the best part about research is just being curious, 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 curious about everything. And going back to the underwater behavior, you get to see a lot of that. Like you're right in the water with the whales, which is yeah, it's crazy. absolutely mind blowing to think about. It's so mind blowing. Even after 30 years, it's so mind blowing. It really is. I love it. Yeah, I can imagine. What does it feel like to be in the water? What's, what's the, like, if you could sum up the feeling. Um, it's, okay, let's see. 
it's like um well there's nothing like being in the real thing so at first i had to sort of hit myself and go this isn't disney world this isn't you know some kind of false reality this is the real thing this is a 50,000 pound wild animal and i've always surrounded myself with animals and wild animals but i'm i'm cautious i'm i might not be totally careful but i'm cautious and i i wait i don't ever get in the water until i'm invited i really don't um you almost can tell if a animal I mean, if an animal comes by the boat and he's checking us out and he's spy hopping and he's looking at us and he's playing, he's lying on his back and this and that, I'll, you know, I'll give him a half an hour to play with us and then I'll get in and film him. But I won't just jump in on the animal. I don't believe in that because it's really their backyard, not ours. And so when you are underwater, it's almost like a dream state. It is almost like you are in between that falling asleep and actually being asleep. It's that lucid dreaming. And I think that's, well, I'm not sure whether because of their brain waves that it puts our brain waves into that place. And that's kind of an interesting question because at the Dolphin Research Center, we used to take children with learning disabilities and put them with the dolphins. And we would actually put um, an EEG uh, hookup on their brain and watch their brains slip over into this beautiful alpha state. So it would go from beta to alpha. And I think that that's kind of what happens when you're in the water with a whale. You're so mesmerized and you're so in awe. And it's amazing that you feel, well, that I feel, I could speak for myself, somewhat safe. Not always. If you're with an adolescent male, forget it. <laughs> They're just teenagers with hormones. <laughs> but you just, you, yeah, I'm there to do science. And so I'm, I'm thinking and I'm observing, but I'm not ever, ever chasing after that animal or trying to interfere with its behavior. Because then what's the study? You're not getting an accurate study if you're interfering with their behavior. So. Yeah, and they they can read what you're thinking. I mean, they know your intentions. And so I'll have calves just swim right up to me and brush up against me or swim eye to eye with me and put their peck fin over me and we'll swim along. And Yeah, it's, it's all about, um, oh, this is going to sound so stupid, but it's just the way it is. I remember I was working with... Uh, my PhD advisor in Australia years ago, and he said, how do you do it? How do you get the footage? Nobody else can get it. How do you get this beautiful footage? And I said, do you want me to answer you and truthfully or, or scientifically? And he said, truthfully. And I said, unconditional love. And that's it. I mean, I know oh, when I'm so in the water right. that I need to get the footage and I need to observe and I need to think, but there is just unconditional love there. And then the animals will come to you and circle around you and show you what they do or ignore you and you get to watch what they do you know, normally. You have definitely had some incredible moments in the water. Oh my goodness, yes, I really have. And it, nothing compares to 
to the one, <laughs> to the one. <laughs> Actually, the one that went a little bit viral. A little bit. Wait till you see what's going to come out soon. Oh my God, Jill, you won't believe this because I haven't, I haven't, well, I sort of didn't share this with people, although I shared it, shared it with everybody I know, but I didn't share it with the public, but I'm going to. And I have a, um, a film guy here right now from Germany. We're putting it together here. Okay. Here's what happened. We were making a film, um, a Dutch film called Whale Guardian, which is out and you can get it. I, uh, I'll have to tell you later where you can get it. I'm not, I'm not even sure. Um, so I will let you know. Um, and uh, Joachim said, you know, we don't have enough footage of you with whales. Why don't you hop in? And there were two whales that I didn't know. And so I did hop in and just slid over the side and they were there. And I started swimming towards one of them. And he looked up. And he, he looked around, and then he swam right for me. But he didn't stop. Well, whales don't do that. They don't do that unless they're going to ram you. And I've been rammed before and rolled down the back of a whale, but that was more of a bit of a, what are you doing here? These are my two females, and they're mine, so <clears throat> go somewhere else, right? No, but this whale, he was gentle, but he came right up to me, and so he got so close that I put my hand out and I didn't put my hand out to touch him because I don't touch my, my study, um, animals. I never, ever, I only touch animals that are stranded or need help, but this whale, I had to put my hand out or I was going to get rammed. And when you get rammed, you know, you, it just ruptures your organs and breaks your bones and you die. So I put my hand out and he kept pushing my hand, but then he sort of took his head like, a puppy dog would, he kept nuzzling me. So the next thing I know, I'm sitting on his head. And then I'm trying to get away. <laughs> I, I have a GoPro in my hand and I don't even know if it's on or not. I don't know if it's filming. I don't know anything. I know, I just know I have a GoPro in my hand. And watching him very carefully and not looking around me, obviously, because if I took my eyes off him, I could get whacked by his tail or his peduncle or his flipper or whatever, or get caught under his pectoral fin. Well, I, I seriously slid down his black back, slid down his tail. I was all over his body. He kept putting me back by his eye. And seriously, my eye was about six inches from his eye and his eye was wide open. And he was trying to tell me something. He really was. It was so wide, you could see the whites of his eyes. It's the most crazy, uh, uh, the pictures are nuts. And, and um, he kept, then he kept lifting up his pectoral fin like, come on, get under, get under. And I, I didn't, obviously, I couldn't get under. Um, I'm not supposed to go deep underwater because I had had brain surgery about a year before and for my epilepsy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My neurologist. Oh, I, I'm a nightmare for my neurologist. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Taylor. <laughs> and, um, anyway, so I'm I'm underwater for long periods of time, but I didn't even think about it. I didn't. I couldn't at that point. I was you go into survival mode, and I just really had to. Re Oh, I just kind of knew that I probably would die, but I kept thinking of my children and my grandchildren and 
and survival. And I stayed very, very calm the whole time, although I would never want to do it again. It's, it's not a soft, fun thing to be thrown around by a 50,000 pound wheel. I just wanted to get away. And so then when he lifted me up on his petrol fin, clear, clear out of the water, I was yelling to everyone on my boat. And they were crying and they didn't want to drone because they didn't want to drone my death. And then I, I got away from him just enough to, to finally look around. And there was another whale there. And it was a, a whale that I now know. I didn't know her before, but she was tail slapping. She was tail slapping around over there. And there, well, there was another animal, but it was smaller. And I thought it was uh, probably a, a Ziphius cavarostris, which is a, a beaked whale. It was about that size. And I was just, here I am still in shock. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, what? What is that whale doing with what's going on here? And then I saw, <laughs> this is the crazy part. I stopped for a second and then I saw it coming towards me and it's the tail fluke wasn't going up and down. It was going side to side. And then I, it got, I saw the stripes and I was like, that's a tiger shark. So I yell to the boat and I'm, I'm not even that far away anymore from the boat. And I just yell, there's a great big tiger shark over there, right there. There's a tiger shark right there. And they're like, you hear Alyssa go, well, then get in the boat. <laughs> and so as I'm swimming to the boat, suddenly I feel this big head just come up behind me and just push me full speed to the boat. And I get up on the back of the boat and I'm like, I, I don't even know. I look at the, the uh, video because I hadn't seen the video until recently. I look at the video of me on the back of the boat and I'm laughing and I'm going, oh my God, oh my God. And I'm like acting like a little kid that just went on a roller coaster. But then, and Alyssa goes, look behind you. And there was the whale. He was sort of curved around me. And so I jumped up on the back of the boat and just said, I love you. I do. I love you. And then I started to cry. I just put my hands over my face and I started to cry. And I had all these mixed emotions. And I started putting it together because Robert Pittman had written these papers and published them about how whales have altruistic behavior and how he observes it. And he actually published these papers on these accounts of whales rushing into scenes where killer whales were harassing other whales or, or attempting to eat you know, baby whales or whatever. Or even I saw them go after um, other whales that were trying to eat a little um, hammerhead shark. They go in there. They don't care what the species is, I guess. And they, they are like the firemen rushing into the fire, risking their lives. They have nothing to gain from it, but they are going to protect whatever needs protecting. And that's exactly what I started, wow, started ripping through my head. And I'd read his papers, and I'd heard about oh, over like 200 events of people saying, how humpbacks have altruistic behavior. And then I just looked at Alyssa and I started crying and saying, what do you think, do you think he was doing all that to protect me? And then we both just realized that of course he was. And, you know, being a scientist, this put me in a very difficult position 
because if anybody had ever told me this story, I never would have believed them. And I would have said, yeah, well, you just happened to be a whale around and you just happened to want to play with you. But whales don't play with, you know, since when do humpbacks come up and play with you, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> and, and so persistently try to tuck you under their pectoral fin. But it's such a crazy story, Jill, that I, I, really, I had a difficult time even knowing whether it should go on the Internet. And only a small part of it went on the Internet, a very small part of it. There's so much more. And I, the first thing my son, um, who does a lot of social media stuff, said to me was, don't read the comments. And so I, I didn't, because there's been, you know, it's, I don't know, hundreds of millions of views. I don't read the comments. I, I read the, the um, emails that I get, which are fabulous. And now I've gotten stories from other people in the world who have had situations where they feel that they were saved by humpbacks you know things are coming out now which is really interesting but because japan is they're still hunting whales even though it's not um in the southern ocean near antarctica it's they're still hunting yeah. a lot of whales around japan i decided to come forward and tell the whole story and so the and i'll just tell you briefly the whole story is that four days later I was doing my research and the other whale, who we call Susie for some odd reason, came to the side of the boat and she spy hopped and she spy hopped and she spy hopped and she kept looking at me and looking at me, looking at me. And I, we were filming her and she got closer and closer until she was seriously about five feet away from the boat, the side of the boat. And I said, Okay, I'm going in. And so this is all on film. And so I put on my thin suit and I I slide over the side and I have a camera in my hand. And she she um, dives. So I thought, oh, well, she's gone. And so I'm just kind of hanging in the water there. And then I look down because I noticed something below me. And way, way down in the blue abyss, I see white. And I see her coming like a torpedo. <laughs> in slow motion with her pectoral fins out oh it was so beautiful it's all on film she's just coming up towards me towards me towards me towards me towards me and you know i'm not even scared at all i don't know why she's just coming up underneath me and she i, I <laughs> the camera i'm holding it like against my chest and so all you see are like the white throat pleats you know the grooves on her chest and she's got her pec fins out and I'm in between her pec fins and she, yes, she closes her pec fins and then she puts them down and she spins around and she, she's got her back to me and she's staring at me because they have this vision where you can see their eyes. I don't even know. I know it's true for dolphins. I don't even know yeah. if it's true for humpbacks if they can see better looking from the top of their head and from looking down and um so she spun around and then she comes around slowly she takes her pectoral fin she puts it in my hand just briefly and then she's got her pec fins around me again and it's my birthday and i'm getting a whale hug i mean give me a break <laughs> oh my word. How much better could it get? i didn't want to tell anyone 
but it's all on film. But I didn't want to tell anyone because, one, I look like some new age scientist that, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm always saying, no, 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 I've published like 60 something papers. <laughs> I'm author, co-author on these papers. And I, I really am a scientist because this story is just so unbelievable. So we spent, oh gosh, maybe three and a half hours with her and she played with us and she preached and she went out and then we realized she was leaving the island. They don't stay here for very long. And so we just filmed her and we followed her and then she'd come back to the boat and she'd breach next to the boat and this and that. And I turned around and the director of the film is um, Dutch. And I looked at him and tears were streaming down his face. And I said, are you okay? And he goes, I'm crying over a whale. I didn't even cry when my wife left me. <laughs> anyway, so we all got very attached to her. So that kind of wrapped things up. And then, you ready for some more? And then... One year and 15 days later, I am with three people, three, four people on my boat who are not really on my team. Um, so it was kind of the end of the season and we just had gone out. They come out once in a while, but they don't know how to do the hardcore signs. And we got this phone call from a fisherman said, hey, there's whale up back by the harbor. So we went up and the whale dove and I said to Shannon, one of the girls, oh, this is weird and I'm sure it's not true, but the tail fluke of that whale had two notches in it that matched the whale that protected me from the shark. And I pulled out, I took a picture of it when he dove and I pulled up my phone and I put them next to each other. And I thought, this is impossible. And one of the reasons I thought it was impossible is that someone from Tonga about a month, a month and a half before that had said that that whale had been seen in Tonga. And so, I, you know, our whales don't come from west to east, right? So next thing I know, next to the boat, right, like right next to me, not next to anybody else, the whale swims up and he turns on his side and his eyeballs looking at mine and he's going, hi, it's me. <laughs> And I literally screamed. I screamed, Jill. I I screamed, oh my God, you're back. You're back. You're back. And and um he went around the boat a couple times and then dove and I got in the water. And he was just sleeping as they do. They have to sleep all the time in the in between. That's what they do. They can be, you know, six whales in a battle. And then all of a sudden they're quiet and they're down. You look under the water, they're hanging, they're sleeping, and then they wake up and continue their fight. Their, their fight. Anyway, so he's sleeping, and I'm just hanging around him. And then he wakes up and he swims right up to me, and I rub his face with my hand. It's a beautiful picture. Seriously, I'm rubbing his face, and he nuzzles me. He's nuzzling me like, "Hi, hi, hi, hi! I came back to check on you." You know, <laughs> this is really unusual because in 23 years of working here in the Cook Islands, I've only had two other whales that I've seen 
for a second time. This was the third whale that I've seen for a second time. Whales don't come back here. We, we don't have site fidelity. Really? No, it's, it's the most unusual thing because humpbacks do have site fidelity, just not here. And so I'm that so happy really to unusual. see him. It's so unusual, really. So I, he, I'm so happy to see him that I'm crying. And I guess if a whale can cry, he's probably crying too. And it's kind of like if you see an old friend and you're, you're hugging and you're saying, oh, I've missed you. It's so good to see you. But you're doing it with this gigantic animal. And so it's kind of hurting a little bit because he's got me on his head. And he's like, hi, 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 hi. <laughs> and so, so I'm, again, I'm holding onto the tubercles on his face. And meanwhile, I'm thinking, is there any biomagnetite in here? <laughs> and so I slip down. I slip down to his pectoral fin. Or he kind of put his pectoral fin under me, I guess. Next thing I know, I'm just lying on his pec fin. Just lying there. He's, he's got it floating at the surface. I'm lying there, and I'm hugging it. And everyone on the boat is going, no way. No way. And they're, now they're crying. And they're, they're, you can hear the notes. Yeah, Shannon goes, Nan and the whale have made contact. <laughs> so um, I just was so blown away. But I didn't, at this point, I didn't really, I didn't know what his intentions were other than to say hello. And I still didn't know if it was safe. There was no shark around. This is a totally different encounter. Before he was in a panic and he was pushing me and trying to get me away from something. This, yeah. this, was, this was a reunion. And so I started swimming to the boat. So he came with me and he was pushing me as I was swimming, just playing. And I got to the back of the boat and I jumped up and I just sat there for 20 minutes with my feet in the water and my GoPro in the water. And he nuzzled my feet. He nuzzled me and he just kept looking up at me and uh, and then he dove and everyone on the boat said we should go in and we went in and i don't drink but they made me drink <laughs> and, so, and so um that was the last nobody ever saw him again that was the last we saw of him it was almost like i fell asleep and had a dream but i didn't want to tell anybody yeah. that but now i'm going to because i want people to realize that these animals have a psychophysiological response like we do, that they have face recognition, that they have emotions, that they have memory. I want to go much deeper into the brains. You know, are they creative? Do they have abstract logic? Do they have anticipatory thought? Do they have problem solving? You know, are, are they wondering? I mean, how how did he know it was me? Why did he ignore everyone else on the boat but me? It's all, it's all very strange. And, and I really feel absolutely honored that it happened to me. But it's so bizarre that it's, it is, but I'm a hardcore scientist. And maybe it's good that it happened to a hardcore scientist. You know, I'm I'm oh, I'm sure. German and Swiss and a Virgo. That makes me very hardcore scientist, <laughs> right? But there's also that artistic <laughs> side to me. And so 
I want people to know how incredible these animals are and that we have absolutely no right as human beings to hurt them or kill them. Just And if it takes uh, 10,000 emails mocking me and telling me that I'm crazy, that's okay. If it helps pre prevent whales from being killed, I don't care. Let the bullies come out. They're out there. <laughs> Luckily, I have video and footage and pictures of everything. So you're really getting a story that yeah, most people don't know. No... Right here. Oh. Yeah, well, I'm really going to start talking about it because, because they deserve to have a voice. And so we all, you too, we all need to be a voice for these animals. Come join the team. That would be amazing. My big thing is education to um, do outreach and to get the word out there through film, yes. through, through you know social media, through film. I used to give a thousand lectures and I do still give lectures all the time because I love it. Um, and, and podcasts like this. And gosh, you've just done so many films lately. It's, it's, it's a way to reach so many people. Um, in fact, just as I was waiting yes. for uh, it to be 8 o'clock, I, I got an email from someone at the BBC about, um, uh, what was it? It's the, we have Ocean Planet 2. This is Ocean Planet 3. And she's just asking me questions about it. So it's so great to get all this stuff out. Here it is. It's about... Uh, yeah. Oh, Planet Earth. Sorry. Yep. Our next Planet Earth series aptly called Planet Earth 3. So it's great to get all this stuff out there. And, and people like it. And I think people are sick of stupid smut TV, as we call it. And they want to watch the documentaries and learn about the earth and the ocean and the animals and stories like this. Absolutely. Hmm. So, um, I built the whale center. You had asked about it. I built the whale center um, with five generations of women that were alive at that time. My grandmother, who was 104, and my mother, and myself, and my daughter, and my granddaughter. And we built it um, because we're all very strong advocates for nature. And my grandmother had built a nature center um, where I grew up on a Quaker preserve. And I kind of copied her, and we did it. And it's been an incredible journey, although about a year and a half ago, it was robbed and ransacked and ripped apart. So that hurt awesome. a lot, and I've gone around giving lectures and raised some money to put it back together again. So we're doing that right now, putting it together right now, which is awesome. That's great to hear. I'm glad that it's getting back on track. That's awful yeah. that someone would do that to something oh that's God. doing such great work. Oh, it doesn't make sense. Karma is karma's a terrible thing for them, and we can be happy and and be a voice for the whales. I really believe that um, I'm just a conduit for the whales. You probably believe the same thing. We are a voice. I think we are. And they need it. We are. They do. They do. They really need someone to help them spread their message. And I think your story that you just told is excellent to show people that these aren't just 
animals. They're like sentient beings and they know what's going on and they're capable of interaction. Yep. And they're capable of, I mean, come on, what other animals have true altruism? They're risking their lives. I just, I just got an email from a couple who were kayaking in Hawaii and a tiger shark came and rammed his boat really hard. He has footage of it and tried to knock it over. And I can relate to that. I've, I've been, my boat's been rammed by a tiger shark yeah. and then spun around and went after his wife and, and rammed her and kept circling her. And then suddenly a, a, a humpback and a calf, a mother and calf came in and the shark was gone. And the mother and calf were there. And wow. for her to go do that with her calf, that's pretty outrageous. That's really, yeah, that's insane. Well, before we head off, Nan, is there anywhere people can find you, like any of your social medias or websites that you want to let people know about so they can learn more about you and what you do? Yes. Okay. Well, we just put a new website up and it's not complete and my assistant can't find the password right this second. So we will make it more complete very soon, but it's, it's interesting anyway. And it's, it's beautiful. I think it's called whaleresearch.org, O-R-G, because we are a nonprofit organization. And so it's just whaleresearch.org. And some of the movies are listed there. But if you just Google Nan Hauser, and it's H-A-U-S-E-R, um, just Google Nan Hauser, or you can Google um, Diver Saved by Whale, <laughs> any of those places. Oh, there's a really good one on the Dodo. So a lot of people watch the Dodo. There are things out there that I've never even seen. I can't keep track of it. I've got too much to do. Too busy a life protecting whales. And, um, but the website has quite a bit of stuff on it now. And so I hope all the women out there are living their dreams and really feeling their strength because it's easy these days in this world to get lost. And I know that I've been lost more than usual in the past few years with politics and health issues and things like that. And we just really need to stay focused and we need to unite. We need to give each other strength. We need to follow our dreams and focus and not be pulled off course or discouraged by people. We need to be encouraged by people. So everybody hang in there. We will get through this hard time. We'll get there. I love it. Well, thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Jill. It's been great. You're giving the whales a voice out there on a great podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Jill. If you had told me I would have ever gotten the chance to talk to, let alone interview Nan Hauser for a podcast, I would have called you absolutely bonkers. That was insane. Nan does such amazing work, and I'm so excited that you guys got to hear all about it. You can follow along with Nan and all the amazing things she's doing by just Googling her. She's that cool. And as always, you can find the Water Women podcast on all social medias. We're on Facebook and Instagram at the Water Women podcast and on Twitter at the Water Women pod. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, stay salty.